Welcome to By the Sword, where we discuss the modern study of historical European martial arts, or HEMA, with instructors, experts and martial artists from all over the world. In this episode of the podcast, I speak to Dominic Eaton of Basel in Switzerland about teaching HEMA, autism, Zulu stick fighting and armoured fighting. The recording took place on Instagram Live, 30th August 2021. Yes. Okay. So, Dominic Eaton, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's lovely to have you here. Uh, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So you're based in Switzerland, is that correct? That is correct, yes. And it's, uh, it's I, can, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Basel or Basel? Basel. Basel. Yeah. Basel. Basel in Switzerland. And you are the founder of, uh, what's the name of your club? It's, uh, it's Schwert. Um, well, the, the, the club is called Freifechter Basel. Okay. Um, we chose the name because Joachim Meyer lived for a while in Basel. He was a worker in Basel uh, before he moved to Strasbourg. And also because I really like his work and I mostly base my curricula on, on his terminology and his methodology as well. Yeah. Okay, you've already answered two of my questions there. So... <laughs> That, so your main focus is the work of Joachim Meyer and Basel being, you know, is that, was that where he was born? Well, the, the sources aren't clear on that yet. Um, mm -hmm. What uh, Olivier Dupuis, who is the main researcher I know on Meyer, um, what he told me is that what we know is that there were several uh, Joachim Meyers who were born in Basel. We know that his parents lived here that um, he lived in the St. Alban Vorstadt, which is uh, um, actually quite near to where my mom is living right now. And uh, there's also quite some of the old houses remaining. So this will be also a project for the near future of, that I want to see if, if the house possibly still exists. It was a house with an adjacent vineyard. There are no more vineyards, but maybe the house might still be there. Yeah. Oh, that's a really nice historical connection to have uh, yeah. to the main master that you that you study. Yeah. Um, and it's there's also uh, that there were the Freifectors was of, of course was with a guild, mm -hmm. uh, the fencing guild. Uh, I guess that was the uh, idea behind the name so sort of a revival of that mm -hmm. tradition um uh you started uh doing hema in 2014 uh the you said the algorithm found you <laughs> how, <laughs> how, did, how did it find you well um I don't know exactly. I was just I mean I was always since I was a child I was interested in uh, fencing generally. I wanted to do sword fighting, but back in the 90s and early 2000s, that really didn't exist yet, or at least not as it exists today. Also, the internet wasn't as developed yet. So, 
I guess I was just browsing and I happened to stumble on um, Skaftagrim's uh, channel and I saw it exists and I thought, well, this is what I was looking for all my life. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's how I came to, to HEMA and from there on I just um, did my own research. I mean, first the, the, it was one of his earlier videos where he also recommended Guy Windsor and he was like my entry point into HEMA. I mean, Guy Windsor does a lot of Fiore, but mm -hmm. um, I really like his approach and just his general attitude where he also often says, it's really unclear what the masters are saying here and, and I really don't know exactly, but it could be this or it could be that. And also, I really liked his way of seeing HEMA as um, in a more perhaps holistic way. So he also, he often um, takes themes of mental health issues and also living history, but also just the, the sheer uh, joy of fighting and of, of doing the art, learning the art. And that really resonated with me. So that's where I started before I um, went visiting in, in several clubs in Switzerland. I mean, the nearest one was about an hour away from Basel. Mm. And I trained there for about a year before starting uh, my own gig here in Basel. Yeah. So you were only a year into your HEMA career when you yes. found a HEMA club and become a club leader. Um, so, yeah. but that was under the sort of mentorship of uh, David Trumps, is that right? Yeah, well, it's a German name. It's mm -hmm. David Trumps. David Trumps, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Trumps, I, I wrote it down wrong. Trumps, yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's all right. Um, <laughs> he, it was really a, a chance meeting. Um, he was doing HEMA for 17 years back then. And he he mostly did it by himself and with friends and family, if he could find any. But um, one day he was clearing out his spam folder. And somehow, because he was studying back in Basel then, he got uh, a mail that we were doing HEMA in Basel. And he pounced on the opportunity. Yeah. And, well... As you say, I didn't have a lot of experience in HEMA. I did uh, quite a bit of kendo and sports fencing. Um, but yeah, it was new to fence with like uh, steel in hand. And also he has a different, um, like he's mostly focused on, on rapier and saber fencing. So I was mostly interested in longsword first, but mm -hmm. I of was course. more... I was more than happy to learn from him and I really noticed how terrible I was and yeah he was he was very patient and he gave me a lot of like private lessons we became good friends um and that's where like my also my theoretical grasp comes from so David has a very intense and deep understanding of of fencing classical fencing theory so the which i find very advantageous for anyone studying hema to get a grip of it like 
I, I'm sure you know some of them as well. Like I saw you posted some books in a, in a post and there was, for example, Tchaikovsky or uh, William Gaugler, Gaugler or yeah, I don't exactly know how to pronounce his name. Oh, I'm glad you don't know either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in any case, so that really helped a lot as well because it gave me sort of the framework for understanding or, or contextualizing techniques. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things which is an obvious example is I started out with the von Danzig, pseudo yeah. von Danzig manuscript. And there most of the plays start with, and then he cuts at your head. And then you do the wrath cut or then you do the, the or whatever yeah and to understand okay so what he's describing is basically a mezzo tempo action so the, the your opponent gives you the tempo in which you do perform the technique and you don't just go there walk up to him and try to hit him so there's more uh, foreplay so to say and that really helped me a lot yeah mm -hmm. so the classical fencing uh, pedagogy uh, theory helps to create a helps to fill in the gaps that the sources kind of leave i guess yeah um it changes some things change of course i mean you have different <laughs> weapons for example mm -hmm. um if we stay with the long sword you don't have the hand protection which doesn't enable the same style of fencing but the similarities are that you have basic units of time, which mm -hmm. are the tempi, and these vary according to the weight of the weapon, but the, the framework behind how to use the tempi stays the same. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you have a little imagination, I think there's a lot to learn from, also from modern sports fencing, but that's oh, yeah. of a different cup of tea, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, ped the pedagogy of modern sports fencing, I think, is probably quite... I mean, this is just a personal kind of theory of mine. I don't think it's changed that much since, uh, you know, 400 years ago, because the way a lot of uh, HEMA clubs are run uh, is kind of in the model of, say, for example, like a karate or a jiu-jitsu club where you have an instructor... Yeah teaching a bunch of people uh -huh. a, a group and you're teaching a, a group of people whereas in uh like uh maya or fabris or alfieri's time it would be you and the instructor uh -huh. and that's how like sports fencing is kind of like that in a way uh -huh. that you have a you take especially particularly like little kids and you have them in a group and then when they start to show like more interest more potential then you then it's you and your coach and you're working one to one um and i think that is i think that is uh something that is more similar in in terms of pedagogy to um how people were teaching how masters were teaching their students in the past to what hema classes tend to be like now and that's nothing against hema classes it's just that you know it's very difficult to be able to do that uh, to, to just give one-to-one -one time to all of your students. Uh, that's something that I know a lot of people struggle with anyway. It's something that they really want to do. But I think, you know, there is a hell of a lot of, of you know, when I first started doing HEMA in 2010, there was a lot of 
antagonistic conversations about sports fencing as a <laughs> very dismissive of, of sports fencing practices. And it, there's still sort of echoes of that now. But I think people are really kind of coming around uh, to the idea that actually maybe these guys are onto something. Maybe they know something and we should, <laughs> maybe we should listen to them, you know? <laughs> They've yeah. been doing this for a while. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned Guy Windsor was one of your influences, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, as and, and of course, Scalagrim was your was your dealer who got you got you hooked uh, <laughs> and then then sort of guy windsor and your mentor uh, and dave rawlings is is a uh, you cited as, as an influence on you uh, tell us you know sort of why these these folks what kind of an impact they have on you and how they affect you as an instructor well i think dave rawlings is perhaps the most difficult to put my finger on exactly how he influences me but I think like his general vibe is something that I really really enjoy um, he seems to be extremely thorough mm -hmm. and well spoken as well I think he can he can talk about movement and actions in a very informed way and in a very clear and relatable way as well, which, I mean, it's difficult to teach. I, 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 I know, and he does it really well. I haven't actually taken a class from him, but he was more of a figurehead, which I thought is really inspirational and someone mm -hmm. I would like to yeah aspire to i guess mm -hmm. um and like there is one video it's a very short video which really um got me got me hooked is where he i think he just looks into the camera and then and then he does a thing like this he goes up and behind him are all his swords and he says you know this is my life <laughs> and, and that was so powerful i i just felt that was so beautiful as well to just being able to say that because i mean as as a growing up i i always had interest in things like that but in my family and in my social st structures around me it was mostly like oh yeah it's boys and their toys and it's not really something serious and just someone coming out like that and saying this is what I love and this is what I want to dedicate my life to mm -hmm. was, yeah, yeah, that, that, that really, really, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I said only about a week ago, uh, what's a, what's a hot take? It was on TikTok. It was like, what was a, what's a hot take that people aren't going to like you to say out loud or something like that? What's something that you believe that people aren't going to want to hear? And mine was that, uh, I, mine is that HEMA, is playtime uh -huh. for grown-ups uh -huh. uh, and pre who are pretending that they're doing a serious martial art <laughs> yeah. Yeah. because i you know as much as i believe that and i don't mean that in a kind of derogatory way at all i think we uh -huh. need playtime uh -huh. for our mental health uh -huh. you know you, you go to school you learn and then it's like right go outside and play uh -huh. <laughs> go outside and and do stuff socialize play games move around be physical yeah. whatever 
now come back in and study. And, uh, and then once you get into the world of work, that all stops. And it's just like, just be indoors, be at your desk, do your job, go home, go to sleep, get up, do it again. There is no playtime. <laughs> and this is kind of like our, you know, that, that physical need for time with other people that isn't online, time with other people where we're moving and learning a skill together and playing and yeah. having fun. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not, um, it's not a kind of derogatory way of like mm. playtime. It's silly, it's silly. And, and you know, sometimes we do kind of like go, this is my silly hobby, you know, I, I mm. like to play with swords kind of thing. But you know, there is a, there is a really serious element to that. Uh, like you say, he's like, this is my life. This is what I've dedicated myself to. Yep. You know, it's hours and hours of study, time mm. away from your family and loved ones. It's, it's a real dedication. Yep. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 I joke about it being play, but I mean play in a sort of intense, intentional way. Mm. But yes, it is, it is a, you know, it's beyond, this isn't a hobby. This is a passion. This yeah. is a, this is a movement, you know? Um, Absolutely. And also, I mean, if we, if we go into the deeper end of what it means to play, I mean, it starts with learning your, moving your body, learning. Yeah coordinate in space but that's only like the surface because i mean then the whole historical part comes into it mm -hmm. where we also can build a connection to how did our ancestors move how did they fight how did they perform because that's also something that i learned a lot in south africa which we might talk about later oh is God. that every fight has very, very strong performative elements in it where the, the fight can be decided by performance alone as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah. even an inferior fighter can, if, if they gain the crowd and they can play the psyche as well of, of the opponent, they can, they can win. So it's a social game as well. And, and this whole um, network of what we do, what we are socially, personally, and also within the, the time continuum is, is really fascinating. And yeah, yeah, re yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, 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 it works on so many different levels. And what you were saying yeah. there about winning the crowd, mm. um, when, I'm, when I'm teaching people I, and I say, you know, there's, there's fencing, but there's also the whole game around it. There's mm -hmm. gamesmanship. So, you know, mm -hmm. there's like your physical actions, mm -hmm. but there's also the, you know, like, like you say, the, the people looking on, yeah. uh, the person watching you and like how, and how you sort of work the system and how, yeah. you know, if you take up space in the middle of the ring, what does mm -hmm. that do? Mm, mm. okay you're, you're physically getting an advantage but you're also saying to your opponent this is mine try and fight yeah. try and get it try and get it back off me come on yeah. and you're saying to the people around you oh wow look at them they're you know they're brave they're going forward they, they've got guts you know yeah. so it's a huge it's, it's so much interplay and like you say yeah. all these different sort of social interactions yeah. it's not just fencing um so Going back to your sort of beginnings as a, yeah. an instructor um, and your sort of fast track to running the Freifecta uh, in Bas Basel. Yes. Uh, 
what advice because I, I this is something i get a lot people are always asking me this uh what advice would you give to someone who's at that kind of moment where they they know that they want to start a club mm. but they don't feel qualified they don't feel that they're ready they like that and there's all this kind of like imposter syndrome i mean people still get it now you know people who've been doing it for years they still have imposter syndrome it never goes away um but you know uh, that's the initial hurdle like the initial yeah. obstacle for people i find is just yeah. like i can't i want i want to have a hema club i want to be able to train with folks the only way that's going to happen is if i start a club but i don't feel like i'm qualified i don't feel that i'm ready what would you say to someone like that um first of all find w at least one person beside yourself who is as crazy as you are uh, this makes things the easiest. If you can't, then you just have to sit tight and and continue doing what you love. And the difference, in my opinion, between really uh, an honest and a dishonest martial artist, which also in time will um, show who is the better martial artist, is to be able to admit it, your own faults. So always be um, big enough to admit if you can learn from someone else. And this is also something we actually tell and still tell any newcomers to our club is if you come to us and you feel like you can teach us something, please do, because we want to learn and mm -hmm. you take this seriously and it's not about the hierarchy or we're not the, the senpai well in a, in a sense we are but <laughs> but that doesn't exclude you from from teaching us like yeah. um, and so yeah and just perseverance i guess so making yourself visible as well be open what i'm doing right now also because i became professional is I uh, go to uh, sports fencing clubs and there are quite some prestigious ones in Basel. And at first I thought like, they are also like, ooh, Hima, that's just uh, play. And they were really open and they were really happy. And also I thought first they want to do rapier. I'm sure sports fencers, they want to do rapier, maybe saber, and that's going to be it. And they weren't even looking at the rapiers. They said, oh, long sword, cool. How do I hold this thing? <laughs> and that was for, for me as well. It was a surprise. And again, I had to think like, I shouldn't be preconceived about what people like and what people want. And if mm -hmm. I'm honest about what I love and, and my passion about it, then people will recognize it and they will take you seriously. And that's where where it really starts taking off. And I mean, I also had the luck that in Basel, there exists, I think, almost the only higher education facility in whole Europe for medieval music. Mm -hmm. So some of our students, we have a professor for um, uh, string instruments, for medieval and Renaissance string instruments, which is really interesting as well because he knows a lot about um things like measures and times and phrasing and things like that which have also been 
connected to to the through the courtly arts of course to fencing to dancing mm. moving in space moving in time things like that and those are just beautiful connections that you can make with people and yeah so uh, just be open be open be passionate and do what you love so you're a professional humor instructor now <laughs> yes I'm that trying. is your job you're, you know that's what puts bread on the table is swords yeah yes since uh, since december 2020 after i finished my ma um, I became a full-time HEMA instructor, so I'm teaching children's classes four times a week. I'm teaching private students also, not only um, fencing, but I'm also teaching Bartitsu, mostly Savat. And yeah, so also because like I have quite some friends who are um, from the rainbow people, LB LGBT community, and the rainbow and, mafia. Yes, exactly, and <laughs> and I I really enjoyed as well learning about like the suffragitsu, suffragette uh, movement, and how they have been connected to the to the but but uh, club of Bartitsu as well, mm. and this empowering of of minorities. In historically, they were women, but I mean nowadays it can be really any minority and and just creating i mean it's such a beautiful thing for me as a teacher to see i teach people how to fight and just the way they start to glow they start to become self conscious in a very good way like if you know how to fight you stand differently mm. you have a different uh, self-awareness which is which is really beautiful yeah, yeah. That, it's just that inner confidence yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it is it is uh, and i think like that that light is like this uh, uh tchaikovsky says your first task as an instructor is to inspire passion in yeah. other people and it's seeing that come alight in, in people's eyes like yeah. we were saying the other day like when they pick up a sword just for the first time like most people have that moment and it's it's yeah. ma magical to witness yeah. Yeah. um and when you mentioned the bartitsu thing uh obviously like you studied like bartitsu was a whole nother uh, sort of sphere a niche within a niche within a niche of hema <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> super nerdy but the whole bartitsu movement was very much about cross-pollination and yeah. sharing ideas and taking different movements and bringing yeah. different concepts together so that whole you know, approaching different martial arts and sports mm. clubs and stuff and, and uh, being open, like you say, to different ways of learning, different ways of mm -hmm. thinking and approaching things is, is brilliant. It's really, really lovely to hear. Um, and going back to my, my, my original question, like advice for new instructors, uh, I, it makes me think of um, Kaya Sadowski, um, who's mm -hmm. one of the people that I interviewed on here. And they've written a brilliant book about how to run a HEMA club called yeah. um, Fear is the Mind Killer. Yeah, actually, uh, you, you were the one who brought it to my attention. And okay. that's why I ordered it and read it. So I have the fantastic, book. <laughs> fantastic book. Every HEMA club yeah. should have a copy. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And, it's, it, and one of the things they said was, um, you, you know, that whole kind of imposter syndrome, like, oh, not 
not wanting to be the sensei or the senpai or whatever they're like you know i am one way to think about yourself is rather than thinking i am the teacher you are the student is a case of i'm a student too you're a student but i'm also a student i've just been doing it a bit longer than you so you know you're you're welcome to come and learn join me in all this learning and share your knowledge with me as well it's not like I have all the knowledge and I'm going to give you bits of it, please. Like, let's all just like share the knowledge together kind of thing. And uh, Keith Farrell was another one who says that uh, you're not training. Um, When you, when you, when you get a new member of your fencing school or whatever, you're training a future instructor. Uh Because even if that person doesn't identify as an instructor further down the line, they are still going to be meeting other students and they are still going to have an influence on them. And the more, the better you can make them at teaching other people, the better it will be for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And on that kind of topic, I mean, what I'll just, before I ask my next question, I'm just going to say to the folks watching, there's seven of you at the moment, but if anyone has any questions that you'd like to ask Dominic, um, whether it's about, uh, his uh you know starting a new club um what we're going to come on to in, like Bartitsu and all the other things that he teaches but we're going to come on to uh some other topics in a minute which when I start talking about them you may want to sort of throw some questions in if you do want to ask us a question at the bottom of your phone screen there's a, like a little speech bubble with a a question mark just hit that add your questions and we will read them out um so my next question for you dominic is about uh, autism mm-hmm. um because you've worked with autistic folks uh professionally teaching mm-hmm. and, and working with autistic people and something that i've noticed and i don't know if this is just because i've become, become aware of it is that or if it's just that i'm sort of more attuned to sort of noticing that there are autistic people about mm-hmm. is that there seems to be an awful lot of people in HEMA who are autistic and i don't know if that's i don't know if that's because i've noticed it or because hema seems to attract us autistic people is there something about it that, that appeals to them uh-huh. um because only because i've made like a lot of friends who are on the spectrum uh, as a as a result of sort of you know spending uh um, over a decade uh practicing this so i don't know what, what's your take on that one um well, my approach is actually pretty much the same as to anyone else. So as you, as you say, I have, this, I have made the same experience that the fascination is, is there, is there. It, I think it's for pretty much the same thing for most people who are fascinated with it, mm-hmm. um, which I can explain in my own philosophical worldview in a way so what what i think which is a big source of the fascination is that you apply yourself and you extend your mind through an object in a, in a, in space and time mm-hmm. and so you realize yourself in a in a very fun way and mm-hmm. now the the thing is with like there's one child I've I've taught. Uh, he was actually my first student I've ever had, like professionally. And it's just the same thing again. You have to look for the passion, and mm. you have to you have to blow the embers, yeah. 
and and let it grow and let it grow yeah and if there's a day where he's just tired and then then just let him be tired and say okay we're just going to talk and then when you feel the right moment is here you say okay how about uh, let's try this or do do it jokingly i mean what i usually do what he what he likes to do for example is when he feels tired he just lies down on the floor <laughs> it's <laughs> just that and then i usually leave him be and then i mean i made my own buffers for children and then after a while i start poking him mm. and <laughs> Then, while he's lying on the floor yeah yeah exactly yeah. and the then he starts smiling and i know it's a little ticklish <laughs> so i'm starting to get to the spots where he, i know he's he's gonna respond and then i'm tr yeah it's just like like i'm trying to coax him out of his shell again and really the it's it's for myself it's not it's not an easy thing to do because mm -hmm. uh, um, it can be quite off-putting if someone is just, okay, I'm done, I'm going to lie down now, yeah. it's over. But I'm trying to do it as a way of stoic meditation in a way. So I see he's doing that and I know I can't change it. If I try <laughs> to push him, it's just going to make things worse. So I'm going to leave what I can change and then I'm starting to work my imagination. How can I find my way back into his mind and into where where his passion is? Mm. And I... yeah, it's just about relaxing and and enjoying. Also, I mostly train outdoors because um, just financially it makes much more sense for me right now. And also Corona and everything. Um, and so, um, often we also just start talking about the trees around or there's an interesting bug on the floor or whatever. And yeah, just let, let, uh, let his attention flow where it will and then try to redirect it at an opportune moment. Yeah. So something that the autism, uh, like people with autism have like, written to me before starting class saying by the way I, I have autism is this going to be a problem and I'm like no absolutely not mm -hmm. um, but what it has done for me as an instructor is it's helped me become more aware of learning styles mm -hmm. and I personally I use tons of metaphors when I'm describing things that's just how my mind works like I say oh you hold it like you're holding this mm -hmm. or this is like a you know this is like a dog or this is like a cat or mm -hmm. you know I use lots of very sort of visual metaphors and and that, but it's made me kind of be a bit more aware that not everyone's mind goes like that uh and I say to people do metaphors work for you mm -hmm. if they don't okay I'll describe it in this way do you want me to show you how to do it mm -hmm. or do you want me to just describe how to do it uh, or, or do you want me to face this way so you're I'm going the same direction as you are or do you want to mirror me you know how how does it work for you what's best for you so for me uh that's the kind of benefit that working with autistic folks has, has brought to me have you got any kind of advice that you would give to uh HEMA instructors out there for working with people who are on the spectrum and what well one thing I forgot to say which I think is just as important as finding the access to the person mm -hmm. 
letting them teach you. Yeah. So just like two weeks ago, it was really interesting. We, he had a bad day because school started again after summer break. And yeah, he, he was just grumpy. And we were talking about something and, and he just said, don't you think it's really annoying that people say something but mean something else? Mm -hmm. So he's really literal about things. Yeah. And I felt like, oh, isn't, isn't this awesome? Like this kid says something that I have felt my whole life. <laughs> yeah. He says it. Yeah, the and truth. I thought, Whoa, so I, I can learn from him just as yeah. much as he can from me. And, and this is also where, where I think um, I try not to see him as a person with autism. I just <laughs> try to see him as a different person. And just yeah. like with any other person, there are challenges when it comes to communication. But there is also a level of humanity which is is common to us and <laughs> and just try to focus on those things than on the differences mm -hmm. and if you find the differences try to look for what can i learn from them yeah. absolutely uh we got a question in the call in the questions box uh, from Smoky Whiskers, which is Rick. Uh, do you find there is a difference between teaching autistic adults compared to teaching autistic children? Yes. Um, well, thing is, as you said, it's a spectrum. Um, I haven't taught as many autistic adults. I've taught one guy and he's more on the Asperger's um, level. So with him, I think the, the, diff the main difference is that he, he has to keep more faith, like he has more faith to be kept. So what I mean with that is that uh, he wants to present himself in a right. certain way. And this is something that I don't feel as much with kids. Mm -hmm. I feel kids are much more direct. Yeah. And... I think they call that masking, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like presenting a, an out, like a, a, a portrayal of yourself that you think... Yeah holistic people want to see as yeah. like this is how I should be acting rather yeah. than just being yourself uh that's yeah I guess yeah. like any sort of anxiety is probably going to heighten that isn't it any kind of am I doing the right thing I, I need yeah. to act a certain way yeah. um and like the guy whom I'm teaching the adult he's um he's a really really intelligent guy and he also always wants to seem very intelligent so he wants to mm. keep like the upper hand when it comes to matters of logic or whatever and yeah i think it's a little more difficult with him than with with the child because um he's not as willing as uh, admitting himself into these games that i'm playing mm -hmm. uh yeah but it's just there, I think what really helps me a lot as well is that um, I majored, no, my minor was in philosophy. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm somewhat good at finding different perspectives on things and in confusing people, I guess, which is really handy in this case because from confusion, I mean, being confused is just another way of admitting your vulnerability. Yeah. And that's really the starting point of all martial arts is mm. that we all have certain vulnerabilities and this is where the game begins to become interesting as well. I mean, if we were all Iron Man, it wouldn't really require uh, yeah. much martial arts, I imagine. It but... makes me laugh. It makes me laugh because you're, you're making me think of this very common refrain from people when they first, like they take their first sword class and they go, I don't know anything. I know yeah. nothing. And I'm like, well, of course you don't know anything. That's why you're here. If you, it was that, <laughs> you, you know, you, you wouldn't need lessons. Or they go, I'm really, I, uh, or uh, like, I'll say to them at the end of class, what's something you want to work on for next time? Like mm. my coordination. I'm like, okay. Or my co my co I'm not coordinated enough. I want to be more coordinated. And I'm like, mm. yeah, of course, because we all want to be more coordinated. Because like, that's all martial arts is. It's just coordination. It's yeah. just coordination. It's just getting control of your body. And uh, that's, you know, on a sort of another tangent, that's something that I find a lot of autistic people are absolutely brilliant at, is just getting control of their limbs. Yeah. Uh, compared to me, at least, like, they're just like, oh, you mean like this? And they'll just do it perfectly. <laughs> like, yes! <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so before we run out of time, um, coming up to the hour, I want to just talk about your time you spent in Durban in South Africa. Yep. Yep. Uh, you, you did your master's, is that correct? Yes. yes. And you were studying, um, so we're going on, on uh, still fighting related, but it's uh, Hama this time. So instead of historical uh, European martial arts, we're now looking into historical African or even just African martial arts. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you were doing your master's on Zulu dance and stick fighting. So tell yeah. us about that. Sounds well, fascinating. The dances weren't planned. I really wanted to do things on Zulu stick fighting because I saw there's interest in it. But mm. little, I, I haven't heard of any European going and learning Zulu stick fighting in comparison to, say, going to Okinawa to learn karate. Yeah. And so that's where I really took off. And once I came to Durban or South Africa, first I came to um, Cape Town and everyone in Cape Town said, if you want to do stick fighting, go to KZN. So KwaZulu-Natal, that's just a region. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Durban and it was really, really hard to find anyone uh, teaching me because first of all, it's like, the racial segregation is really hard to come around, especially getting out of these bubbles um, as a white person. Uh, and people really thought I'm crazy because, yeah, I did think crazy things like using the public transport and, and talking to black people on the street. <laughs> and so even there, it was hard to find anyone in the city because in the cities, as far as I'm aware of, 
people don't like to see stick fighting because first of all it reminds them of being primitive mm -hmm. and second of all stick fighting contests can get quite out of hand so it can actually result in brawls and so for public order's sake you have to go into specific areas which are even more difficult and often um, quite, uh, yeah, like in areas where there's high criminality and such. Mm -hmm. And I was really lucky because there's a big um, entertainment park in Durban and I saw some Zulu dancers there and I was quite desperate by then because I was in South Africa for two weeks already and I should have gotten some field work done and yeah all I got is it's really hard to do <laughs> and so I asked the dancers after their performance uh, I went up to them and said I would really like to learn this and I'm not afraid of getting hurt either uh, I won't sue you or anything if you hit me in the head with a stick it's fine and they said okay but <laughs> In order to learn the stick fighting, you have to learn our dances too. So that was our agreement. And I also had to perform with them. So uh, they first they had in mind that we'd perform war once or twice. But in the end, I was performing with them over 20 times. At Well, they were professional dancers and I probably made a terrible fool of myself, but it was really really a lot of fun also seeing just people's faces when they see just the uh i mean the whole thing is it's it's a group dance so you you are sitting in a plaza and there are drummers in the back and the dancers do their solos and sometimes you have a big group dance and just in this crowd of of beautiful black bodies there's just the one pasty guy <laughs> who uh, is dressed as well like we had the whole traditional Zulu dress on and and yeah I think I, I ruined some people's fantasy like their romantic uh, fantasies of the the, <laughs> yeah. the, best, the verisimilitude by yeah. the way suspension of disbelief <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also the, the Orientalism. So, so this yeah. other otherness. I mean, yes. And, yeah. But it was also really nice because there were folks from like the whole park employees. They came to watch us, and there were people from the like the owner's kid said to to his mom, "They're they're white," and he said to his mom, "I never knew a white person could do that as well. I I, I always wanted to learn this, and so." I when I heard that I thought this alone made it worth it for me because mm. this is the the connections that we built mm. and I revisited them later I went also to their village um, which is Katoric it's a small well small village in rural KwaZulu Natal and yeah I could I could talk a lot about that but I think yeah we should watch the time some more okay i, I know you've, you've got to put your little girl to bed at some point. oh no no she's already in bed oh no, she's no. in bed that's okay that's okay we, we're, we're not, no, that's fine we're not limited um yeah. so what drew you to what why why durban why stick why uh stick fighting what made you focus on that 
Well, um, it was actually a post by Jens Kleinau. I'm not sure if you know I him. I recognize the name. Yeah, like he has uh, on Facebook, he goes under Johann Paulus Karl. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, any, anyways. And he, he once did a post where he put a picture of a Talhofer um, image next to or he said that oh look the Zulus they know Talhofer because they have the similar pose with the buckler held out front. Oh, is that the shield with the uh, spikes sticking out of it and stuff? Yeah exactly yeah. and the Zulu stick fighting as far as, as concerned here is also done with a parrying stick which yeah. has um, around your your knuckles you have a leather shield. Mm-hmm and in your right hand you have the stick so you can also use the parrying stick for offense but also for controlling the opponent's weapon and i thought that's a very intriguing parallel and since i like the one and i'm interested in the other i could do something anthropological out of this since yeah it's concerned with cultures and and i thought Living traditions. Yeah, yeah, it's a far-fetched analogy, but in the end, I mean, our anatomies are the same. And if the weapons are more or less the same and we strike similar poses, Mm. then, yeah, that's something interesting to write about. And, yeah, so that was the connection to Talhofer, which made the whole thing. Talhofer was the gateway drug (laughs) this time. And... uh, you know, how long, what's the kind of lineage for Zulu stick fighting? How long, do, how far does it go back? Oh, um, I really can't answer that question precisely, but it goes back probably hundreds, if not a millennia or more of years. I mean, the Zulu, if I'm not completely mistaken the Zulu have arrived in South Africa about 200 years before European settlers came Mm -hmm. so they were also settlers so there were um, the Khoi and the San who were the the native tribes of that region and the Zulu who belonged to the Bantu people they migrated south along the east coast and they drove the Khoi and the sun into the desert, more or less. Mm-hmm. And the Zulu have uh, quite the reputation for beca- being a very martial culture. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, of course, Shaka Zulu, who is the most famous um, uniter of tribes and builder of an empire. Mm-hmm. And the thing is also here we have the parallel again to performing to dancing so the zulu dances i was told was also a form of um, passing the time for the soldiers because it's really physically demanding you you don't as much dance as we know it as you just move as much as you can and show off as much of your physical prowess as you can and um, the stick fighting as well. You have these performative elements which all come in a way. It's they also say it's playing with sticks. So it's not it's not fighting for life and death. I mean, yeah. you could kill someone with a knob carry or a, a stick, no question. But um, 
yeah it's it's kind of as far as i understood it's kind of um to keep the soldiers occupied and that it comes from that mindset mm -hmm. aerobics <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way, I guess. Yes, yes. Now, bringing it back to Europe again. Uh, yep. you, uh, just to finish up, uh, we, let's talk about your recent investment in a suit of plate armor. Tell us about that. Yes. So, I've done Bloßfechten since I start uh, started Hema. Yep. And. The thing was, I I was really fascinated by Daniel Jacquet's work, who, mm. who did a lot with the harness. But I really thought uh, it's it's costs almost as much or more than a car. Um, yeah. And I really don't have the money for it. But I got to know a really nice armorsmith who, I don't know how long now, he... He's part-time armorsmith. He, during du during COVID, he did it full-time as well, um, because there was more demand and he couldn't teach. That was his second part-time job. He's uh, teaching Tai Chi and um, maths, I think. Mm -hmm. And I got to know him because he's part of a reenactment group and they invited us as a club to their uh, summer camp to give a seminar on sword fighting. And that's how we got to know each other. And then I thought, oh, I'd ask him, perhaps I can over the maybe the ne next five years or so, I can assemble a suit of armor and he said, yeah, that's no problem. And um, so we got to talk. I visited him a couple of times. I also, uh, he let me forge, uh, like I made a knife for my daughter and a brooch and little things like that. Um, and yeah, it's been a really nice um, friendship with him. Uh, and he doesn't live far away from him here. And he's, I think, the only armorsmith within the German-speaking community, at least the only one who accepts um, students, pupils. That's Nathan Queni. Queni, yes, yes. yes. Um, he has his own website. If, you, if you're interested, I can send it to you or we can post it or something. Mm -hmm. And he, he does... Like beautiful work, he's been engaged from multiple um, museums as well, for which he did multiple suits of armor. One of which is for children, like for ten-year-olds. Uh, Is that and... based on the uh, Henry Tudor? Uh, when I think there's a suit of armor from when he was ten years old or something like that. Okay, I I don't know exactly, but probably yes, because. Like the the armor I commissioned, at least the helmet um, from him, is the first one he said, which is not a reproduction. So he really specializes in in museal reproductions, mm. and so I guess so. Yeah, or maybe it's just a scaled down version of of a, a different different suit of armor. Mm. So your suit is that gonna like you said it's it's not a museum reproduction. So is that your spe uh, specification yes yes well i have of course inspirations um 
it's gonna be a 16th century style plate armor but i wanted it affordable so that was one of the big issues like uh first of all i thought oh i want to get the um the burial harness from from the from one of the medici uh, there's like the the one that's featured in in Tom Leone's uh, the oh the uh, black the the yeah 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 della banda yeah. nera that that chap I forgot yeah, which one. yeah Giovanni della banda Giovanni della banda nera yeah, yeah that's it gorgeous so, gorgeous set of armor yeah but then I I thought who that's well I showed him and he said yeah there are some some things which are a bit difficult to make he he mm -hmm. he has no problems with making it just it's gonna cost more. So I just looked through a variety of armors and, and saw something that I thought visually attractive, but also something which is relatively easy to make. And he was, he was really happy. And I mean, the only issue uh, we have, but it's really a non-issue, is that I have to visit him a lot. Mm -hmm. to to get the measurements right because it's not a reproduction so he doesn't have a blueprint to go on and then he has to do his own calculations and measurements and what whatever whatnot yeah so i'm really looking forward to that and what's your what's the uh, i mean apart from having a cool set of armor for <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. bees knees What's the idea behind it? What's the practical uh, use that you're going to put it to? Are you going to be doing reenactment? Are you going to be doing like HEMA stuff? Yes. I want, I, I want to do HEMA, um, HEMA stuff. Uh, uh, well, Harnischfechten mostly, I think we started doing the Gladiatoria with a friend of mine, but it's just... If you don't know the the movement restrictions or the I don't know all all these details that you get to know when you're wearing an armor, um, it's it's a bit of a half-assed situation. You're a bit, it's a bit blind. You don't really know. Yeah, is it yeah. Right? I mean, you, you can still do the joint locks and and whatever with the sword, but um yeah, my goal would be to do to do hema with it. Uh, also, not Buhurt. Um, uh, so, but that's again a thing that is uh, an ongoing research topic. How how can you train Hema in armor when the whole goal of fighting in armor is kind of circumventing the armor? Yeah, <laughs> it's how like avoid the that? armor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how get in the gaps, like yeah, exactly. get up here and, <laughs> yeah. and all the rest of it. Don't yeah, ruin my armor. Just stab me in the soft bits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, just getting to know that. And in order to do so, you need at least one set of armor. <laughs> I hope that um, one of my co-instructors will, in time, get their own. Or maybe there will be some other folks in Switzerland and will meet up somewhere, or yeah. in southern Germany or France. Oh, that Daniel Jacquet guy, I've heard he's got a Yeah, cool. yeah, no, definitely. I think mean, <laughs> he's very busy, I know. He's teaching at university and has a family as well. But uh, yeah, I think 
I'll be seeing some of more of him than I have. Uh, I expect so. Uh, one more question in the mm -hmm. questions box. Let's just check it out. Um, it's about the armor uh, from Foxhound. How heavy is the armor and what is the movement like? Well, we haven't got it yet, but you might have some idea, Dominic. Oof. Well, it depends as well on the undergarment. Mm -hmm. So if you have a heavy gambeson and I don't know, a shirt of mail, which would go under, it adds up. But since it's fitted to the body, um, the, the weight, weight distribution makes it relatively easy to bear. So mm -hmm. if you want to look up the specifics, I would recommend you look up the video of Daniel Jacquet. It's on uh, YouTube and also on Facebook. And there he does an obstacle course. Oh, yeah. Where he compares <laughs> the full suit of armor with the full um, gear of a firefighter and a modern day um, soldier. And they do the obstacle course in full gear and have the stats and compare the results uh which of course isn't quite scientific but but no spoilers no spoilers you've got to watch the video to yeah, see yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna place spoil. your bets now who do you think wins the obstacle course <laughs> but one thing i can say is that i think the armor is in the middle so i think the lightest one if i'm not mistaken is the soldier's gear and then mm -hmm. the suit of armor and the firefighter's gear is even heavier yeah and of course, the firefighter and the soldier are carrying most of the weight on their on yeah. their body, on their torso. Yeah. Uh, whereas the 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 knight, the the guy in armor, it's as you say, it's distributed throughout the whole body. So that's yeah. going to. And the gray, so you have leg armor as well, which um, the firefight. Well, I mean, they have their insulated, whatnot, but yeah. So, uh, yeah, go watch that video on YouTube. It's a really good, uh, mm -hmm. as you say, not that scientific, but it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, yeah, thank you, Dominic, so much for coming on the show. It's been really fascinating, really interesting to talk to you. Thank you for having me again. Great. And I hope to bump into you in real life at some point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Take care. You too. Bye. Our sponsor today is none other than our Patreon members. You folks are bringing swords and HEMA to listeners worldwide, so thank you. To support our work and receive exclusive benefits, visit patreon.com forward slash swordwomen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To show your appreciation, please give us a five-star review on your podcast platform or support our work by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash swordwomen. Go to at swordwomen on Instagram to see upcoming interviews or visit bythesword.net to learn about our events or visit our Facebook page, By the Sword. <laughs>